Good morning. Happy Sabbath all. We are doing lesson number two in the third quarter, the Gospel in Galatians. Let's start class with prayer. Gracious Father, I want to thank you for yet another opportunity you've given us to examine your character uh, as revealed through the uh, the life of Paul and the teachings uh, of, of your gospel through his work. And I want to thank you for preserving it in Scripture. I want to thank you for each and every uh, individual that's represented here and, and the class in general. Please continue to guide and mold and shape our class and our character so we can hasten your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. The lesson um, in numerous places, uh, for example, the, the title of this lesson, Paul's Authority and Gospel. And in, in a number of places it refers to this as Paul's Gospel. And that got wheels turning in my head and I, I don't I don't think the I don't think the lesson author is, is malicious in any any way or shape or form in, in referring to this as Paul's gospel, but is this really Paul's gospel? Is the gospel Paul's? Or is he sharing is he sharing a gospel authored by someone else? Whose gospel is it? Who originated the gospel? God, Christ. Okay. The Godhead. When? And where? Before the foundations of the world were laid. So this is not something that happened uh, after the death and crucifixion of Christ, is it? The, this, this gospel didn't develop after Christ's death and crucifixion. That was a, that was a major, that was a major uh, revelation of, of the gospel, but the gospel was formed and written, and it is the gospel something that was added uh, to, to the universe because of a certain situation, or is the gospel simply a, a revelation of things that have been all along? Revelation of things that have been all along. But when I, up until this class, when I thought of the gospel, I always thought more of it of um, teaching how Christ came to this earth. Yes. For me, I never thought of the gospel as the character of God. Right. And that's why I think, even when I look at this, I think of them as presenting it more as a teaching of what Christ was like here on this earth and stuff, more so than the gospel of the love of God. I, I'm right there with you. I, I, I had the same exact mindset uh, years ago and, and thought the exact same thing. You know, I, I, I went so far as to think, well, the gospel is, you know, God paid my penalty, so I didn't have to. <clears throat> you know, God, God took, you know, Jesus took upon himself God's wrath. So now I'm, you know, he's the big umbrella keeping the hellfire and brimstone off me. You know, when you hear people say, if you were to present the gospel to somebody that knew nothing about Christ... And you, you, how would you present it? In the past, I would have already presented it like that. Yep. But now, you know, it has a whole different meaning. If you were to present the gospel to somebody that knew nothing about God, how would you present it? Good. And I, I we can certainly, we can see um, a path very similar to yours in Paul's life. Okay? He thought he was spreading the gospel when he was, na- when he was known as Saul. Okay? He... Uh, uh, who was he working for? He was working for God himself. So he thought. There are several places in here where, you know, it's mentioned as Paul's gospel. I just wanted to flesh out that, um, you know, I respectfully disagree. I, I think it's Paul's understanding of the gospel. It's Paul's understanding 
and uh, telling of his experience of of working in opposition to the actual gospel and then coming into a realization that he was mistaken in trying to undo the work he'd previously done. Yes, sir? To me, the gospel is, simply means good news. Okay, I, I think that's a, a, a literal translation of it, but... Just look at it as Paul's authority and good news. The good news of God. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. What... what it depends on what law lens we're we're looking at the gospel through that defines what good news is. Okay, if you're looking at an imposed law lens, the good news is that Jesus took the punishment that I deserve, that we deserve. Jesus took God's wrath, so we didn't have to. Jesus is the one who's pleading his blood in front of the Father. Don't hurt him, Dad. I died for them. They're my children. If you look at it from a design law lens... The good news is that, according to Christ, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one, you know, one in character, one in mission, one in purpose, one in love. And you know, the Father is also yearning to save, to heal his children. So if you're at a level four or below uh, moral development, then, then you tend to naturally want to see things as a... As a uh, imposed law construct. If we have, uh, if we are level five or higher, then we can conceptualize or conceptualize some of the design law um, concepts and themes. You know, Paul had spent a long time working in opposition to the gospel, and and he he knew he knew fairly well. Um, after his conversion, he he began to see the the stark differences between the. Uh, the old, the, you know, the, the workings of Saul and then the new workings of Paul. The lesson, um, in Sabbath's lesson, the, the lesson poses a hypothetical here uh, in the first paragraph. Students at a university built a center on their campus where everyone, regardless of race, gender, social status, or religious beliefs, would be welcome. Uh, imagine if years later these students returned to the campus only to discover that other students had redesigned the center. Instead of a large room with plenty of space for socializing, designed to bring a sense of unity to everyone there, the room had been subdivided into many smaller rooms with entrance entrance restrictions based on race, gender, and so forth. Sound familiar? Safe spaces? Anybody? No? The students responsible for the redesign might have argued that their authority to make these changes came from a centuries-old established practice. Thoughts? Or are we seeing anything like this hypothetical today? I'd like to propose another hypothetical. Um, Suppose one of the prominent uh, professors of theology at uh, one of our respected Christian universities who'd spent many years presenting illegal theology, including books and sermons and sitting on committees tasked with rooting out heresy in the local church, gets up in front of his class and states that he's been presenting a false remedy for many years and then begins presenting a healing theology in an effort to undo his early life's work. How would he be treated by his students or by the other professors or by the church members? How would he be treated by his wife and family? These are some of the barriers that Paul faced uh, when he's presenting the gospel of Christ, not the gospel of Paul, to the Jews and, and likely to a lesser extent to the Gentiles. Um, any thoughts? 
Yes, sir. I'll ask one more, Ruth. How would, okay. How would he be treated by the people who believe what he's converted to? Because, um, I mean, that okay. another, yeah, yeah. if I look at the, the life of Saul, I mean, not only was he outcast from the, the side he was on, but the people he had switched to were scared of him, too. Initially, yeah, absolutely. No question. You know, uh, you imagine if if uh, you know, Hitler was around. Yeah, my bad. Sorry, guys. Uh, I I was I was in the wrong. I love Jews and homosexuals and I and, and dissidents and artists and uh, yeah, I, you're, you guys are all great. Just studying for the lesson has got me. I guess I've never really delved into pondering some of the um, some of the barriers that Paul faced um, from having worked so hard in opposition to uh, the early Christian church and then doing a 180 and then working uh, even harder to undo his early work. Sunday's lesson, Paul the letter writer. Um, I, you know, I want to, in studying for this lesson, I, I found it was a little, little, little difficult. I, the author spent almost seven days focusing on Paul's introduction in Galatians. Um, and I'm more interested in the, the meat of the, uh, the, the gospel itself. So we may not be following the lesson too closely. My apologies in advance. Um, the lesson may make some, goes into some style points and some support for, you know, the authentication of, of, you know, Paul's letter to Galatians. And it's my understanding that the, his authorship of Galatians is not really, is not generally questioned. Uh, I was more interested in the context and the content. Uh, however, the bottom of Sunday's lesson, there's a you know, the lesson uh, presents a fairly provocative question. And if uh, the Bible were to be written today, what kind of medium, format, and style do you think the Lord would use to reach us now? Thoughts? Would He do it in, in text speak, where <laughs> words are abbreviated, and the letter C is used for the word C, and the number four is used for the word four, and and there's all sorts of bizarre um, acronyms and things like that. What do you What do you think he would use? Tweeting. Think you, you think the Lord would tweet? He limits 144 characters or less. <laughs> I heard not long ago that uh, some guy literally he he used Twitter to um, he tweeted the entire Old and New Testaments. In different tweets, and he limited it to 144 characters each. And it took him, I don't think it took him three years to do it. I mean, I don't know why someone would, I don't know why someone would use Twitter in the first place, but that, that's a, that maybe just a generational issue. <laughs> Apologies to all you Twitter users. Would he use television? Would he use. Um, YouTube would he would he use handwriting and fire on a wall like he did uh, uh, at the end of the Babylonian kingdom? Well, what, what would he? We have Sister White's writings. We think they're inspired. She used just regular writing. I mean, okay, but that, that was 150 years ago. That was pre-television. Uh, you know, pre-radio, pre. But I mean, I'm thinking that he does use that today. We have our TV evangelism. We have our YouTube evangelism. We have all that. We do, but the, the lesson is specific to the writing of, of the scripture. 
So you're saying what would Christ use today to well, write a Bible? If if the Bible didn't exist until you know if if the the climate of the world the world the state of the world was such that Scripture could not have been written until today, how would it be presented? Today's technology. Yes, sir. Um, I think just pulling away from what we use, I don't think that God would use or try to compete for space in a secular medium. I think that a lot of what we have now is uh, predominantly distraction. Good. Yeah, I agree. And so I think that if God were to come and share his message, inspired message, I think he would use something that we haven't even thought of yet to convey it to us uh, directly. All right. Well said. Yes. Would we accept it if it wasn't written in English? <laughs> more, more likely, would we accept it if it wasn't written in King James English? <laughs> because that's, that's the only honest translation, right? I've Googled some questions I had as I'm praying and asking God things. I Google things, and um, I'm thinking blogging is a good way. I, I go online, and, and I ask a question, and there's some amazing blogs out there with people sharing what God is Share them. So. Okay, uh, that brings up another good point. Um, how many of you have ever Googled a, a question or uh, something that you didn't know and you end up with 10 million options? Uh, how do you flesh out um, truth from, from fallacy and all that? I mean, it, it, the gentleman's comment about you know, most of media being a distraction is a, is a, you know, is a poignant one. But the, but the problem with all that is, if the internet went down, you wouldn't have anything. Right. Yeah. Whereas in the written word, you always have it. I mean, if something's written down, you always have it with you. Not in Paul's day. Not what? what? They have no, but he said if the Bible was written today. He sure. said if God presented it today. And I think to myself, if you, I know there's people that don't have access to even written word. I understand that. But majority of the world has access to that. Whereas, like I said, if the internet goes down or something, what do you have? Peace and quiet. Amen. That's true. Well, see, that's God using that for his word. That bothers me because that's how I feel about it. You know, I mean, you have to be, I'm not computer savvy. I don't care for all that. I use it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, when I sit and read the Bible, I want to do, I do. I want to have peace and quiet. I don't want to, when I'm looking for the Bible, have an advertisement come up, you know, for something and all that. I just want the peace and quiet of just seeing that. And I just don't think the Lord would you. I don't know. I mean, like he said, maybe it's something we don't even think of. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't have any great answers either. I mean, I think I think it's fair to say that throughout the entire spectrum of human history, he has met people where they were, whatever their whatever their capabilities, whatever their understandings, whatever their misconceptions, he has met them where they were, and he does. And he, he still does the same thing today. And, you know, like you said, there there are. There are there are blogs, there are, are um, videos, there are um, you know sermons and things that are that are presented in multimedia. We we're broadcasting, we're webcasting this live right now uh, because it's it's a way to reach more people. Um, so I you know, I think it's clear that God has and would and will continue to meet people where they are. You had a comment. So. I want to, we've been focusing on the medium. What yeah. medium would he use? That's just the technology. Yeah. Um, I want to throw out something else. And how would his parables change? Right. Because his parables were focused on what they were doing then. Correct. You know, the, the parable of the lost sheep. Um, maybe we might we might have a parable 
about the internet or, you know, the Holy Spirit is like the internet. It's everywhere. You know, it connects us to God. You know what I mean? Yeah. His parables may be different, more applicable. To yeah, we, we're, we're a bit less likely to understand the agricultural parables. I mean, you know, we, can, we can see, yeah, I, I, think he, I think he would still connect parables with design law. You know, agricultural parables are, are you, can, you can see the, the way, you know, when a seed goes in the ground, the seed dies and it becomes a plant. Um, and, you know, the mustard seed is the tiniest of all, but it becomes a huge plant. You know, these, these, are still, these are still metaphors that we can understand today, even though I've never planted a mustard seed. And, and you know, when, I, when my sister and I were growing up, we were kind of, it was expected that we would get out in the garden and do the weeding because my dad loved gardening. I despised it. Still do. Couldn't care less. Don't want to. Don't want to dig in the dirt. So yeah, I, I'm. I'm sure the parables would need to be adjusted for present day understandings. But uh, I still think they would. They would be. They would bring us our visions back to design law, just like they did, you know, two thousand years ago. I mean, that's, that's certainly how the gospel was spread, you know, from Adam to Seth to Methuselah to Enoch to uh, Noah. I mean, you know, it was, it was a verbal telling of, you know, this is the way things were at creation, and this is what our original parents did to forfeit that, uh, to forfeit the garden. And, you know, if you, if you put stock in any Ellen White's writing, she said the Garden of Eden was left on earth for, for many years after the fall. So that people could literally come and, and see the angel with the flaming sword and look into the garden and see what things were like. So there was there was a verbal telling of things, and then then men started writing things down, and that's what. And then we came up that, that those writings were compiled the Old Testament, which is all that you know. That's what Paul had. That Paul had to read from. That's what Christ read from. That's what he taught from. Those, those were the only writings around with the Old Testament. And then those writings became the New Testament. Uh, Monday's lesson, Paul's calling. We talked a little bit about this. You know, who did Saul believe he was working for pre-conversion? He, he thought he was working for God. And who, and who did he believe he was working for post-conversion? The same being but a different understanding of the same being. It's, it's important to understand. Uh, you know, we, you know, Tina and I were speaking earlier about how our, our concept of the same being has changed since coming to this class. Okay, my, my, my mind's eye picture of God, my physical picture of God hasn't changed. But my my vision, my understanding of how he functions and his character is dramatically different. It's almost the complete opposite of what I grew up with. And, and because of that, 
I look at even all humanity different. Yeah, well, I would hope so. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything, even everyday experiences in life, I look at differently because of that. And it's interesting that you could spend almost your whole life believing something to be true. And then all of a sudden, it changed, and it changes your whole outlook on life. You know, I, I suspect that our first thousand years in heaven will be, will be this giant, will be in cognitive dissonance for the whole millennium. Just, you know, wondering, well, I was wrong about that. How did I get that so wrong? You know, these trees don't look gold to me. Uh, you know, is, is, so that's what a rainbow looks like. You know, that's what a snake looks like. Yeah. If you look at um, humanity before the flood, they live about a thousand years. Mm-hmm. So if you think of the thousand years in heaven, it's our first thousand years. It's us growing up. Yeah. We're we're learning. We're learning all the things that we need to know to survive for the next infinity. No, I, I think that's. I think that's right. I, I think it will be. It'll be a, an entire period of cognitive dissonance and unlearning. You know, we're we're discovering the tip of the iceberg here, hopefully, and and we're you know we're allowing the the healing of remedy and character of Christ to be poured into our lives through the Holy Spirit and and to transform our characters to be able to to live in in, in heaven and to be able to see God face to face before we shall be like Him. However. Uh, there's going to be a lot of unlearning to do. I, I'm, I just, I'm convinced of it. Learning and unlearning. And, you know, Tim has touched on this several times before. Um, admittedly, we're in a fallen state, but in, here on Earth, what, what's one of the fundamental tenets of learning? Experience. An open mind. Yes. Okay. A healthy mind is is a. Here on Earth, what often has to happen for learning to occur? You have to make a mistake. Okay? How many of you remember that one test, that one question on that one test that you knew you had right and was wrong, and you can still remember it? I still remember test questions from physical therapy school that I knew I had right. Turns out the answer was wrong. I was mistaken. I was I was wrong. I call those trick questions. <laughs> I did too, and I fought for every point I could get. <laughs> but still, the making of mistakes is how is how learning occurs on this earth. Now we can argue that in an unfallen state, you know, in in, in our flesh made immortal, that we will be our brains and our our physical capabilities will be so much better then the mistakes may be minimal, but I suspect we'll still make mistakes in heaven. It won't be sin. Okay, it's not a sin. If I walk out of here and trip over one of those cords, is that a sin? No, it's a mistaken gait. I made a mistake in my walking. I tripped. Okay, if we're learning to fly, might we make a mistake and run into a tree? Or run into one another? Who's to say? So I suspect that uh, even though we're even though we're unfall even though we'll be transformed and and regenerated and phys- in physical and heart and mind, I think we'll still make some mistakes. I think learning will occur a lot more quickly. Well, when you think about it, what fun would life be if you didn't make mistakes? I mean, that's sometimes what causes the humor. Yes. 
You know, I mean, if everything just worked out perfect all the time, I don't think that would be fun. Hmm? Right. You know, I don't, I don't think, you know, if, if I end up in heaven, I don't think I'll automatically be able to play the piano. Because no. I haven't learned to play the piano here. Now, I'll, I'll have the ability to learn to play the piano, and I'll probably make some mistakes learning to play the piano. My capabilities will be such that uh, I'll learn a lot faster than I would here. From Monday's lesson, uh, I think it's down toward the bottom, the fact that the fact that Paul so strongly denies that his apostleship rests on any human being suggests there was an attempt by some in Galatia to undermine his apostolic authority. Why? As we have seen, some in the church were not happy with Paul's message that salvation was based on faith in Christ alone and not on the works of the law. They felt that Paul's gospel, here we are again, uh, was undermining obedience. These troublemakers were subtle. They knew that the foundation of Paul's gospel message was tied directly to the source of his apostolic authority, and they determined to launch a powerful attack against that authority. Now, from Galatians 1, 11, and 12, this is Paul himself writing, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. Okay, here we have in Paul's own words, it's not his gospel, it's, and it's not a human gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the origin of the gospel. Jesus of Nazareth, in case anyone were wondering. Um, we'll get a little bit uh, in, in later, later in the lesson. We'll talk a little bit more about the opposition uh, he was seeing. Regarding the opposition that he was talking about, uh, why, why is it um, that some were unhappy with Paul's message that salvation was not ba- was based on Christ and fi- faith in Christ, Christ alone, not in the works of the law? Is this a has this been a common theme throughout throughout history? Certainly since uh, the early Christian church and before. It would seem like that the imposed law mindset, you know, it predates Constantine. Well, I think in earlier times, too, the doctrine or whatever was more tradition. And I think once Paul preached the gospel according to God, it broke some of their rules of tradition, and they didn't like that. Kind of like our class, you know? Mm-hmm. Teaching something different from what our church has been teaching all these years, and so people don't like that. Yeah, they perceive it as a threat. A threat to membership, a threat to some theology professor's life work, a threat to tithe revenue, a threat to a variety of things. I found a couple of interesting Ellen White quotes, and and my thanks to Tim, because I had to email him for one of them. I I couldn't find the right search words. This first one's from the Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing, page 109. But in heaven... Service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening to something unthought of. In their ministry, the angels are not as servants, but as sons. There is perfect unity between them and their creator. Obedience to them is not drudgery, is no drudgery. Love for God makes their service a joy. So in every soul wherein Christ, the hope of glory, dwells, 
His words are re-echoed. I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is written in my heart, referenced in Psalms 40, verse 8. The thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening, awakening of something unthought of. You guys ever considered that? That one of, one of Lucifer's foundational arguments before the angel, he and the angels were cast out of heaven was God has a law. It's an arbitrary law. I mean, look, look, he lets Michael into certain councils and not me. I'm a covering cherub. It's an arbitrary law, and he imposes it arbitrarily on his creation. We're angels. We, we're holy. We should be free. I think the model of family really comes in handy here. Um, we were, we're told that we were given the law because of our misbehavior. Uh, so if you compare a couple different families and you look at, let's say... Little Jimmy's house, he doesn't feel like there's any crazy laws, but he, he visit his friend John. And John has a rule in his house, you don't set fires in the living room carpet, you know. It, and this kid is surprised that there's a rule for that, because he would have never even considered doing something like that. So he didn't need to have that rule spook, uh, spoken, because it was something he did naturally. Now, this kid apparently did something wrong at some point and had to be told, no, you can't light a fire in here because that's bad. And then we roll over to what we understand in this class. It's a natural law that if you do that, something's going to go terribly wrong. Um, but if, if, like with Satan, his biggest problem was being left out. Most kids won't be upset that they aren't involved in the tax planning or the financial planning that their parents are talking about because they are not to that level. So Satan was, in this essence, looking at someone who he saw as an equal, maybe as a brother, but maybe this brother's older, more capable. He's involved in the family planning, in the estate and everything, but being excluded isn't because he's looked down upon. It's just he is not capable of taking part. That's that's factual. That's that's correct. But if you're that younger brother and you think that you have something to offer and you think that you should be included, then that's where problems arise. I and mean, you know the, the the family the family model uh, and metaphor is you know fits us nicely because we're because that's what we understand in heaven where uh, you know at the at the beginning. And this is something I've this is something I've pondered a lot lately. At the at the very very beginning, imagine imagine yourself as an angel and you've never heard a lie. In fact, you don't even know what a lie is. Everything that has come to you from God, from Michael, from Lucifer, from every other angel has been truth. Everything has been truth. Okay, we we grow up. We're born here, and we almost we understand dishonesty almost from the get go. Did you take the cookie out of the jar? No. Nope, not at all. Okay, we, we, we understand dishonesty perfectly. It's it's part of our it's part of the fabric of our lives. We have to be we almost have we're almost to the point where we have to be skeptical of anything we we see in here. But as an as an unfallen angel, the how would you discern what's a lie? Everything you've heard is truth. I've wondered that all along. I don't understand. I, I don't understand it still. 
I know it's it's it gives me it's giving me chills just to even think about it right now because, and as subtle as Lucifer was, you know, a third of the angels were were off the rails before they knew it. And if you again, if you if you give credence to Ellen White's writing, she suggests that some of them realized that they were, you know, they were, hey, this is this is not the path we want to be on. And he had another subtle deception. Was, well, you know, you guys have gone too far now to, for any forgiveness. Your, 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 your case is hopeless. You're with me or you're, you're done. So that, that, that sealed their commitment. So, yes, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, he, he's the father of lies. And, you know, scripture tells us quite clearly he's the father of lies. In fact, our savior himself referred to him to that and a murderer from the beginning. So it's ponder that next time you got 15 minutes of of whatever without a distraction. Ponder what it would be like to to have never heard a lie, and what tools would you use to discern truth from lie? It's scary. I mean, you know, we I have sometimes been guilty of thinking, well, if I've been an angel, I wouldn't listen to him. Nonsense. I very well may have. Don't ponder too much. Well, <laughs> what? <laughs> I pondered a lot. And the other week, uh, we were talking to my son, and he's not a kid, you know. He's, mm-hmm. And he asked the question, which I've asked many times, God, knowing the end from the beginning, he knew Satan was going to fall. And as a consequence, take the angels with him, and how many millions of people suffered and died because of it. Billions, Why yes. did he even create Satan to begin with? I mean, knowing that all was going to happen and all the suffering, why did... And then, of course, it was brought out. My husband and I tried to, you know, well, because God, being fair to himself, had to create with a choice. You know? Why? We're going to touch on that to here on Wednesday, God Thursday. Would have known if he hadn't created Satan, only God would have known that he didn't create something that could have sinned. I mean, I, I couldn't explain that to my son. I couldn't. I can't explain it to myself. I and I, part, of the, part of that understanding is God didn't create Satan. God created Lucifer. But he gave Lucifer a power of choice. But where did he even come up with the thought of a sin if there was never sin? Where did that concept come from if there was never sin? Well, that's what's known as the... It's the mystery. Yes. The scripture refers to that as the mystery of iniquity, meaning that it has no... Has no rational, has no rational place. It has no foundation. It has no um, reason. There is a mystery behind the origin of iniquity. Well, like when you said, how would the angels understand what sin was? Yeah, how would the angels even know what sin was when there was never sin? Exactly. But they never that's, follow a lie when there had never been a lie. That's exact. Good question. I mean, these these are these are deep questions, and and I think they are worth pondering. Well, I'm pondering that too much. I mean, it has bothered me. It's like, you know, all this sin that we're going through could have been avoided if you just hadn't created Lucifer. Well, maybe, maybe not. Somebody else. Yes. Before do we even have children? I mean, we know they're going to mess up. I don't. But, but, do it. Yeah, but doesn't that give you? you but doesn't that give you some deep ends? You, you parents 
have something that I never will, and you have a deeper understanding, the mind and the heart of God, than I will. Okay? Because you you love your children unconditionally. You love them when they're healthy, when they're unhealthy. You love them when they make good choices, when they make bad choices. Okay, this this is this is this is very godlike. This is this is this is much of what it means to be created in the image of God. Okay, so but we are also taught lies from our parents as children. It's just like well, not only that, we're given we're given defective DNA from them, so the lies are more believable. You're right. Little Muslim kids are, are taught from from the time they're just babies. If they get their life in a jihad, they go straight to heaven. And they strap bombs on themselves and go blow themselves up. And they think they're going straight to heaven. And some Christian children are taught that the doctors that perform abortions are evil and they should be shot and the clinic should be bombed. Okay. Same. There's a guardian angel that's writing down all of our misdeeds and yep. put a record so that if they're not confessed and forgiven, we'll be lost. Correct. That, that, is, that is what we're taught. But yet, Scripture says God is love, and love keeps no record of wrong. This is a great point, and this is what it means. And when when um, Paul is talking about um, the immature, the children, not knowing, you know, not needing, being unable to eat meat and needing still to be fed milk, they're unacquainted with righteousness. And they're still talking about some of the basic, very basic concepts. We, God expects us and wants us to grow up. He wants us to to mature into adults where we are able to see evidence, weigh evidence, think for ourselves, make informed decisions that follow the design for life and freely make those decisions. Exercising our reason, our judgment, our conscience, our, and exercising our will to make decisions that are in harmony with his design for life. That's what it means to be an adult. The child needs the rules not to set fire to the carpet in the living room. The adult doesn't need that rule. But in concept, like what he was saying, teaching our kids lies, we were talking, like I said, with my son, and he said, well, I never have understood a God that could burn people in hell. Like, and I went, what? And he said, I remember growing up, you know, being scared to death. Of hell, because thinking, you know, we're each going to burn according to the sins that we've committed, you know, and all that. And I'm like, where did you get that, Matthew? He said, from home. I'm like, I never believe, I never believe that. I never believe that we're going to burn forever, you know. And he said, well, I certainly didn't. I used to lay awake at night thinking about it, you know, burning. But how could how could he be a god of love? He could could you burn me, your child? No, I could never do. How can God burn His people? And I'm like, how in the world did he ever get that? But through schooling and office conversations, I guess. Yep. A good friend of mine, orthopedic surgeon in town, and, and one of his you know, his seven-year-old boy uh, stays awake, nightmares, that he doesn't want to burn in hell. And this, this guy's one of the, this guy's one of the, this guy's one of the most devout and genuinely Christian men I've met in a long time. But they, they, this is still the, this is the, this is what's taught in, in their church and in their home. He's one of the, he's one of these interesting people that cognitively function is a level four, but he, 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 the way he functions is level five and above. 
you know, I, I had a long talk with him about it, and, and he said there are some people out there that, that have a, a cognitive state that's level four, but they function at a level five where they seek the best interests of others functionally. They can't, they can't verbalize the, the doctrine and, the, and the, um, I mean, all the other stuff that goes with the level five, six, or seven, but they function there. And that's something I'd never encounter or thought of. Yes, sir. Russell, I, back to Satan. Before Satan, did we have a choice, and how would we know we had a choice? The short answer is yes. We had everyone, every being, every being created by God has choice, has free will. All right. Since we're on this, I'm going to skip down to. Um, uh, it, sorry, one more, one more comment. Uh, we're going to skip some things here. Go ahead. Yeah, what the lady was saying earlier about don't don't think about it too long. Uh, I was on a uh, debate team in high school into a uh, Christian academy, <clears throat> and one of the prerequisites for the class was you had a debate. Uh, we had debates in class, and you had to pick for and against. And I found myself a lot of the times just arguing against what I believed, just so I would strengthen mm-hmm. why I believe them. Just thinking about what their arguments are. Um, but one of the interesting positions I had to take was uh, arguing against predestination in a Christian academy because of that same line of thought where if God knew that, you know, a trillion years before he ever thought to make, you know, Lucifer, um, he could have just not done it and created another character and uh, just avoided this whole thing. But since he knew that was going to happen and he knew the ripple effect and it goes all the way down to you and me and he knows whether or not we're going to be saved, it's really not up to us because he already knows. And that was a, the theme of the debate. And on the spot, I had to come up with something. And what I came up with in high school was, uh, you know, if you look at trends in life, uh, in engineering, in, in nature, science, there's over time a certain inevitability. And so my proposed argument was that if you were talking about a million, a hundred trillion years, that there was going to be this fork in the road inevitably uh, where God's character was questioned, uh, regardless who the name on the, on the character was, at some point he knew he was going to face it. And just like, you know, if we build something, we know that there's an inevitability that's going to break or that it's going to be challenged or changed. Uh, we can create a business, but we know that that business inevitably, someone's going to think of something that will put us out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is not malicious. It's just over time, intelligence and, you know, theories just arise. And so that was kind of my explanation. I said, well, it's not predestination. He just knew at some point. In time, his character would be questioned. It so happened to be Lucifer, and with at that moment, he could have killed or decided to change. And he knew in that moment, if he did attack Lucifer, it would validate his statement, and the ripple effect, salvation would have never happened for us, because the whole of the universe would have seen uh, that that inevitable uh, question Maybe God would have been a dictator. And right. He had to prove that he wasn't over time. He had to give evidence he wasn't. And that's, that's one of the things I want to flesh out, the difference between proof and evidence. 
I'm in the middle of reading a, a, a fantastic book, which I highly recommend. And and you know this this book will it goes a long way to answering some of these questions. You know, why did God permit sin to happen? Uh, you know, which is another you know chapter one in Patriarchs and Prophets is a great is a great read for uh, you know foundation on that. But the book is by a, uh, a gentleman called Sigvi Tonstad. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a um, professor of biblical translations or biblical something at Loma Linda University. He's also, he also happens to be an MD. He got his MD and then just as a lark decided to get a PhD. And he, he reads, you know, Greek and Hebrew and, and he's, a, he's an incredibly, incredible intellect. The name of the book is called God of Sense and Traditions of Nonsense. And I'm gonna warn you ahead of time. It's a deep read. Um, I, I have I have lost count of how many times I've had to go to the dictionary and and look up a word that he's used. Um, it's 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 pretty scholarly. So I, I don't hold myself out as any you know hyper intellectual. So I, I've I've struggled and slogged through it. So fair warning. Two pages at a time. That's how you read it. <laughs> I'm reading it two paragraphs at a time. <laughs> pages. My page takes me a week. <sighs> he speaks about the issue of freedom very quite eloquently, um, and how this is understood and misunderstood. Um, this is a quote from uh, this book, God of Sense and Traditions of Nonsense, page 333. Proof gives a person no way of retreat. Faced with incontrovertible proof, the person who is in his or her right mind will have to surrender even if yielding happens against their will. Get your minds around that. Jesus offers evidence but not proof, in part because the indisputable proof can be a form of compulsion. In God's economy, it is possible to say no without seeming to be out of one's mind. Assent must be freely given, and it must be given in response to manifestations that are not coercive. I had never, ever considered proof as coercive until two days ago when I read this. Think about what would have happened if Christ, while hanging on the cross, and and the jeerers and the, the mockers down there, come down with the cross, we'll believe. You've saved others, save yourself. What if the heavens had opened and 12, 12 legion of angels had appeared in all the heavenly glory and he had pulled the nails out and hovered there and called fire down from heaven on the Pharisees and on the temple, giving irrefutable proof that he was the son of God, what would have happened? Would fear have increased or decreased? Fear would have increased. People would have said, okay, we're convinced, don't hurt us. We believe. Okay, that, that's, that, that's what happens in, in cases where you often give irrefutable proof. Okay, God, Christ provided evidence, plenty of evidence that he was the Son of God, but he leaves us free to examine the evidence and come to our own conclusions. Yes? I can see how that would be a really tough book to get through. Um, yeah. But at the same time, uh, that fine line between proof and evidence, you're also looking at what result you're looking for. If you're looking just for people to not step out of line, that type of approach works. But if you're looking for what God seems to be looking for and what I think he's looking for is the freely given obedience because it makes perfect sense and it'd be inclined to go another direction, uh, that requires a different type of 
approach and instead of going boom, there it is in your face, the proof by this definition as I understand it, uh, you do need to just provide evidence and at some times because he meets us where we're at, small bits of evidence at a time until we can wrap our heads around Right. Because we're not... Because we can't handle... <laughs> you know, like, like, what's the movie like? You can't handle the truth! <laughs> Tuesday's lesson. And what is the central truth upon which the gospel resides? According to Paul, it's not our conformity to the law, the point that Paul's opponents were trumpeting. On the contrary, the gospel rests fully on what Christ accomplished for us through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Christ's resurrection, death and resurrection did something we could never do for ourselves. They broke the power of sin and death, freeing his followers from the power of evil, which holds so many in fear and bondage. Um... And that's a, that's a, again, that's a quote from the lesson. Is it accurate? Is it an accurate quote? Is it complete? If it's incomplete, what, what's missing? Gospel rests fully on what Christ accomplished for us through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. His death and resurrection did something we could never do for ourselves. Okay? Oh, no. Is that accurate? No. No. That's not what the gospel rests on. Well, we just discussed that earlier. The gospel rests on the character of God, the God of love. Okay, I mean... And this falls into... And again, you know, it depends on what law lens you're looking through. Yeah, but... And Christ loved us enough to die for us, therefore saving us. God loved us enough to die for us. God died for us that day on, right. on the cross. Right. Well, when I speak... I speak... I mean, to me, I'm speaking of the whole Godhead. Yes. When I talk of that. But he loved us enough to die for us, so it's all about love. Okay, what did that accomplish? What did that accomplish for us? Mm-hmm. Eternal life, salvation. Is that all? Let me rephrase. Through what mechanism? Okay, yes, it accomplished salvation. What were the two fundamental accomplishments? Well, he had power over sin then. He forever showed that we could have power over sin through his death. Through his okay, so he secured a remedy for the human condition. Okay. Am I saying what you're... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but... Yeah. Right. So his life, death, and resurrection secured a remedy. A cure for sin. A cure for our condition. Yeah. Which he freely gives us if we if we are, are willing to accept it and take it. It did something else. His death did something else. His, his life, death, and resurrection did. Yes. Well, it revealed what was already there. Good. Yes. Thank you. I mean, we didn't understand how much God... I mean, God's character and how much he loved us. I don't think that the created beings in the universe who had not sinned understood. I think they were just as surprised. And I think the devil and the fallen angels were also surprised. That everybody was surprised. That's, the only one who wasn't surprised was God. That's, that's succinctly put. So it revealed... But it was already there. Yes, exactly. It revealed God's character, it revealed Christ's character, and it revealed Satan's character. Okay? Not only to humanity, but to worlds unfallen. And to, and to heavenly intelligences. Who And, and you're right. I think there, there was astonishment in the universe that 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 God would lay down his life. He was willing to lay down his life and did lay down his life. He allowed his creations, his created beings to terminate his life instead of use compelling proof to do otherwise, to save himself. Laying down the life, his life became the compelling truth. 
it became strong evidence. Yeah, I mean, it's very, I mean, very strong evidence. It, if, if you allow yourself to, be, if to, to weigh the evidence and then freely be compelled yourself, yes. Yeah. You know, comp- compulsion, compulsion has a bit of a negative connotation, but yes, it's stark evidence, to say the least. Wednesday, real quick, Wednesday's Gospel, entitled No Other Gospel. No other gospel, even from an angel of light that calls fire down from heaven? At the bottom of Wednesday's lesson, there is a today a tendency, even in some of our churches, to emphasize experience over doctrine. What matters most, we are told, and is our experience, our relationship with God. However important experience is, what does Paul write, Paul's writing here teach us about the important of, importance of correct doctrine? Well, if doctrines didn't have a purpose, why have them? If it wasn't a purpose of the doctrines, why did God inspire Paul to even write about them? I'm not saying that's is the most important. I'm just saying they do have a they do have a purpose. The Hindus have a doctrine of reincarnation. It's a doctrine. I'm not a Hindu. But it's a doctrine. But I'm talking about biblical. Is it a healthy doctrine or is it an unhealthy doctrine? Well, I wouldn't say that's an unhealthy doctrine, but we're talking about the doctrines that Paul is preaching. I don't know that Paul was preaching about doctrines. Uh, in fact, I think he was confronting traditions. There were some of the Jews were, were upset because he's teaching the Gentiles that circumcision is unnecessary. So what's doctrine? That was a Jewish doctrine a Jew, and a Jewish tradition. What was man's original design in Eden? Was he circumcised or uncircumcised? What was the state of his genitalia? Foreskin or no foreskin? <laughs> no, I'm not. What was the original design? Foreskin. Yes. Did God give man a foreskin just because he knew that one day he was going to ask him to cut it off? Or might it have served a purpose? What was the purpose of hacking the thing off at eight days old? We've talked about this in here, too. I don't think in that detail. Maybe I've got too much time on my hands. It's a foreskin. Big deal. What's doctrine? Okay. Well, what is doctrine? Yes, sir. I think uh, it doctrine is evidence. Um, I think that that's something that when I was reading the lesson uh, and in Galatians, uh, the reason why I think Paul is talking so strongly about it is because you need to follow the right evidence. Uh, and I think that the person who wrote the lesson, or there's the mindset behind the lesson, correlated what they had, that evidence, and, and, and manufactured doctrine around the evidence. Uh, but I think that what Paul is talking about is uh, make sure you are following and listening uh, the right, you know, the the right evidence of, of Christ's gospel. Okay, doctrine should be based on evidence. Doctrine should give us some revelation of truth. Is that a disagreeable statement, or is that you guys okay with doctrine, quote, doctrine should reveal some truth? So the doctrine of reincarnation, I, does it reveal truth? No. I don't think so. To the Hindu, it might. Okay, the, shouldn't we be more interested in, in, in fleshing out truth versus doctrine or tradition? 
Okay, and in, in our class, we have taken the, what's it called, the evidence-based approach, the integrative evidence-based approach to fleshing out truth. And the three fundamental pillars of that are Scripture, number one. Experience. Experience, number two. Nature. Nature, science. Okay, those are the three fundamental pillars of fleshing out truth with a capital T. Okay, and if you if you put yourself only in the experience camp, you can end off you can end off in in the reincarnation in the Eastern mysticism. Um, where, where does experience come in in reincarnation? Well, okay, good question. Well, that's well, why it's talking. When I was working in San Diego, uh, one of my colleagues got a patient in, and one of the things, if, if you work in healthcare, you understand one of the first things you do in healthcare is you, you take a history. Well, Karen was asking this patient, uh, so tell me, why, why do you think you're having these migraine headaches? And the young lady said, well, in a previous life, I was Marie Antoinette. I, I think that's why I'm having the mi- migraine headaches. Okay, so that was her experience. Or so she thought. And to answer your question, I don't think my experience doesn't have anything, has nothing to do with reincarnation. But to her, she thought that she had been reincarnated, uh, was Marie, Incarn- Marie Antoinette reincarnated. That was her experience. And my, my suggestion is, is that she only relied on experience. She didn't, she had, had no place for science in her thinking and no place for scripture. She was, she was only in the experience camp. If you're only in the science camp, then you end up off the rails in, in evolutionary theory. Satan can control your experience. Or manipulate. Satan can manipulate your experience. Uh, he, he can't control how we react to that. Yeah, he can't control how we react to it. One more comment, and then we're, you know, every, every time I teach in here, I'm worried about ending 15 minutes early, and we always run late, so I should stop worrying about that. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, the comment you brought up was talking about doctrine, and the definition they provide is a belief in a set of beliefs held by and taught by a church, political party, or other group. But if you were to go back to the actual scripture that they had um, in Galatians 1.5, it didn't talk about doctrine, it said about the gospel. Yes. I think that's a major difference, is that... Um, you know, any other gospel, he said, yes. that that person should be accursed, not any other doctrine. And I think if we were to look at the doctrines, you know, if I were to look at, like, my doctrines, my doctrines have changed, you know, have, over the years. And um, I, I now understand a different gospel. Yes. So because of the understanding of a different gospel, my doctrines have changed. So I'm not accursed, according to Paul's word, uh, because I now understand the truth. what I feel. That- this particular example, if we're fleshing out doctrine, circumcision would be a doctrine. A tradition and a doctrine. Yeah, but they... It's not the gospel. That's, yes. That's the point. They reference Galatians, and then they turned it from, from a gospel to a doctrine. And I think right. I agree. All right, let's close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, and thank you yet again for um, the evidence of your faithfulness, the evidence of your character, the evidence of Christ's character, and the evidence of Satan's character. Uh, we ask that you give us strength... Uh, and insight to weigh the evidence, and you strengthen uh, we strengthen our wills to choose to choose to believe the evidence and to follow the evidence, so that we can stand when you come again. In Jesus' name, Amen.